This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm really happy to be here today to be able to talk to you about the oceans and the Anthropocene. Now, we used to think the ocean was so big that it was too big to harm. And this, this wonderful quote from Thomas Huxley uh, in the 19th century when he says, probably all the great sea fisheries are inexhaustible. That is to say that nothing we do seriously affects the number of fish. Now, of course, we all know that that's not correct. And I actually learned that lesson quite early on uh, in the beginning of my graduate research, where I was working on the north coast of Jamaica. And here you see on the left, a picture that I took as a grad student really shortly after I got to Jamaica. And you can see these beautiful coral reefs, but there were no fishes in the picture. And that was pretty typical of the situation then. And then you see another picture taken um, 10 years later when the corals themselves are also gone. So this was a very abrupt way of learning that coral reefs uh, were fragile ecosystems. And of course, the bad news has kept on coming uh, throughout the course of my career, and it's not just coral reefs. Here you see a series of titles just from the last year, a couple of years from Nature and Science about declining oxygen levels and uh, productivity declines, the great vulnerability of marine ecosystems uh, and organisms compared to those on land, uh, the also the role of organized crime uh, threatening an ocean economy and a huge amount of plastic waste, which right now we're not successfully uh, doing anything about, and even a half a century of the decline in sharks and rays. So, and this is just what I could fit on one screen. And I could, of course, give a whole talk uh, on just these topics or any one of them for that matter. Now, the problems are real and they are big, but one of the things I learned, uh, particularly teaching to graduate students at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, was that if you present problems without solutions, can actually lead to apathy rather than action. And of course, what we want is action about these problems. And so as a result, uh, about 2007 or so, I started thinking about different ways of talking about the ocean. I used to be uh, so depressing that uh, I was actually, uh, my husband and I were referred to as Dr. Doom and Gloom on the lecture ser series. And so this took quite a retooling of my uh, presentations, but I eventually began starting a series of symposia called Beyond the Obituaries on Success Stories in Ocean Conservation. I started with some others, a Twitter campaign called Hashtag Ocean Optimism. And then this has even led to a, a whole series of summits sponsored by the Smithsonian uh, called the Earth Optimism Summits. So what I'd like to do today is uh, tell you a little bit about uh, some of the successes we have had in ocean conservation. I think you all know the problems, um, but many of these solutions and successes are much less uh, well-known, and that's why I want to focus on them. So the first topic I'd like to turn to is uh, preventing extinction. Now, there are a number of marine organisms that have, uh, particularly through hunting, been uh, pushed to the brink of extinction. Some actually have gone extinct, but a number of species we've managed to save. And sea turtles are actually one of the notable examples of success, at least some of the populations and species. So what you see here on the map are the 17 populations of sea turtles, and the green circles are those that are populations that are increasing. And as you can see from the charts on the right, in some cases, these increases have been really dramatic from almost nothing to thousands and thousands of individuals. And so sea turtles are a really good example 
uh, when people put their mind to it and uh, take conservation action, protecting beaches from nest uh, uh, raiders and also working to prevent entanglement, uh, it's actually possible to turn things around and really make a difference. The second thing that we've been pretty good at doing is protecting ocean spaces, and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and forms. Some of the ones that we've protected are enormous, and typically these really big ones are far away from human populations. And a really nice example is the Ross Sea in Antarctica, one of the largest, if not the largest, of all marine protected areas. But some of them are actually quite small and uh, near to us. This is a shot that I took uh, in Hong Kong of the Mai Po Park, and this is nestled between Hong Kong and uh, Shenzhen, nearly 20 million peoples, and yet it is an important protecting space for a lot of uh, seabirds that come to roost and uh, rest there. We've also gotten better at fishing sustainably, fishing wisely. Uh, There are a couple of different ways this has occurred. One big method we've used is to change the economic incentives so it makes it more likely that fishing is done with a a view to the long-term sustainability rather than short-term profits. One of those mechanisms is called uh, individual tradable quotas or ITQs. You see them plotted out in a map and a study was done now a while ago. But what that study showed was that the uh, having these tradable quotas uh, where people could fish a certain amount and then actually could sell those quotas to others if they wanted to reduce the possibility of uh, fisheries collapse by about 50%. And just the other uh, month, a new study was uh, released showing how to reduce bycatch. This is a big problem. You get a lot of unwanted things in fishing nets, including seabirds and, as I mentioned, sea turtles. And it turns out these lighted nets uh, can reduce uh, the biomass of uh, bycatch by over 60%. So this is a big advantage and hopefully will be implemented on a, a large scale in the near future. Finally, we've gotten pretty good at replanting a foundation species. In this case, what you see is the seagrasses, which are very important ecosystems on many coastlines around the world, but it's also the case for oysters and mangroves and other uh, marine creatures that really create the foundation of the ecosystem. In this particular case, a relatively recent study, over 70 million seeds of uh, seagrass were planted, resulting in the expansion of uh, 9,000 new acres of seagrass. And not only have the seagrass recovered, as you see in the chart on the left, uh, we see the line heading up toward the top of the chart, that black line, but it's also resulted in uh, quite a few ecosystem services improving as well. Those are the things that ecosystems do for us uh, basically for free. So carbon and nitrogen are being better stored in the sediments and invertebrate biomass and fish biomass are increasing dramatically as a result of the rebound in these uh, seagrass uh, plantations. We've also gotten uh, uh, much better at reducing pollution. Of course, this some of this started early on, uh, particularly with the work of Rachel Carson, who pointed to pesticides as a terrible problem, particularly for birds, including seabirds. And the result of the banning of uh, DDT about 10 years after her book was published in the United States in 1972 has resulted in the dramatic recovery of ospreys and pelicans and, and many other birds of prey. And then in the case of Tampa Bay, which you see on the right, the reduction of nutrient pollution has resulted in a dramatic increase in the amount of seagrasses there without even planting any seagrasses, as in the previous example, uh, really back to 1950s levels. And so that constitutes a really big success by, by all definitions.
And then we've also good at removing some of the things that really didn't belong in the environment. And I show here two examples that which may puzzle you at first because they're not from the ocean. Talking, I'm talking about here about removing dams from freshwater streams and removing rats from oceanic islands. It turns out removing dams is really important because those dams block the passage of fish who spend part of their lives in the ocean and part uh, in freshwater to breed. And the re- Reduction of dams, for example, near where I live in Brooksville, Maine, has resulted in a dramatic increase in the number of alewives. And those alewives are important food uh, fish for things like bald eagles and striped bass. And on the image on the right, what you see is South Georgia Island, uh, where rats have been completely eradicated. This is an island not too far from Antarctica, resulting in a dramatic rebound in seabird populations because rats are very good at eating uh, uh, seabird eggs and uh, young chicks. So to summarize uh, where we stand right now, this is a recent review published by Duarte et al. in uh, 2020. This is a, a summary of where we are in terms of species protection and management. And so what you see for fish stocks on the left is that all those blue places are increasing and uh, the red places are declining and the beige is no change. Now we need more blue and less red and beige, but still it shows that there are quite a few fish stocks that are increasing around the world. And similarly, uh, on the right, you see the data for marine mammal populations. And in that case, you can see quite a bit of blue. These are populations uh, that are increasing and much, much less red. So we're doing quite well on the species protection front for marine mammals, not quite as well um, with fisheries, but progress is being made. Now, there's plenty to celebrate, of course, but plenty of work still to be done. And similarly, in the realm of ecosystem protection and restoration, what you see here on the left is the percentage of the ocean that's covered by marine protected areas or MPAs. And on the right, the amount of restoration taking place in mangroves, seagrasses, salt marshes, coral reefs, kelps, and oyster reefs. And once again, you see the trend lines are definitely going in the right direction, but the numbers are still too small and there's plenty of work still to do. Now, in terms of thinking about the future, where we're headed, as I mentioned, we've got work to do. What do we, what tools do we have in our arsenal that are really just uh, coming uh, into play that can help us in these efforts? The first I like to call the ocean data revolution. And you see here two images, one from the Global Fishing Watch, which tracks all fishing effort around the world by satellite data. And then on the right, you see the tagging of Pacific Predators program, which involves lots of different organisms that have uh, tagging uh, devices attached to them. And so we can see both where all the fishing is going on and also where these organisms are traveling. And those two, two sets of data together can greatly reduce the conflicts between these organisms that we're trying to protect and the, the fishing activity that's taking place. There's also what I would call an ocean genetic revolution. Uh, this is particularly true on coral reefs. Uh, for corals, it's the organism that I have spent my uh, lifetime studying. And there's been a big effort now to understand the genetics of what makes some corals very sensitive to global warming and others uh, much more vulnerable. And using that genetic information to try to breed corals that will be more likely to survive in the future uh, warmer ocean. And this is called assisted evolution and has gone quite a long way since it was first began uh, less than a decade ago. There's, of course, also what I would call the ocean energy revolution. All through uh, Europe, this is really coming to fruition. And here in Maine, where I live, we're starting to have our first uh, wind energy. And of course, uh, there are other kinds of ocean energy as well, tidal uh, mechanisms to capture energy and, and currents and other things. But wind, of course, is the one that's clearly the farthest along. 
And then there's the ocean financial revolution, new ways of bringing money to bear to solve these big problems, which we need. So on the left, you see uh, a story about uh, the role of new insurance mechanisms. This was a, these were coral reefs in Mexico that were actually sh- insured against hurricane damage. And when a hurricane occurred, the payout from the insurance covered the cost of paying local people to go underwater and uh, repair the damage. And then on the right, you see uh, the work being done uh, by the, these both projects are actually being done by the Nature Conservancy and their partners in the Seychelles, a major financing effort called Blue Bonds, which is basically a debt for nature kind of swap, which allows the Seychelles to put more money into protecting and sustaining their marine resources. And then perhaps most important, I think, in the future is what I would call the ocean human revolution. And for a long time, people thought of ocean ecosystems as apart from people, and we would protect them as professional conservationists, but we weren't really paying much attention to the people who are right there on the front lines. And this is really starting to change. Here are two early examples. Uh, on the left, you see Chilean harvesters of something called the Chilean abalone. It's actually a snail, not an abalone, but it's very tasty like abalones, which is why it has its name. And these communities have gotten together in cooperatives to organize for themselves how much fishing they can do, how much harvesting they can do of these these shellfish in a way that has turned out to be much more effective than anything that could have been done in a top-down fashion by the government. And similarly, on the right, you see an example of a national park, Cabo Pulmo National Park, which was created by a small, impoverished fishing village uh, in Baja California in Mexico. And uh, the result has been the, one of the most successful marine protected areas anywhere in the world. Again, uh, the idea of and run by local people. And increasingly, we're seeing that this connection of people and humans and the, and the success that local people can have in restoring and sustainably managing their marine resources is really impressive. And so that's a very important revolution that's occurred. Finally, uh, I'd like to mention that this is, in fact, the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science. And it's the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. And the tagline is the science we need for the ocean we want. This is really new. Most ocean decades for research have been strictly about research. And this ties back into what I was just saying, the people connection, figuring out what people need from their ocean and using that to guide scientific research. So with that, um, I'd like to sh- share this final message. If the problems seem bigger than the solutions uh, to you, and they are big, I'm not denying that, don't give up, scale up. And I hope this talk has given you some ideas about some of the m- many places where efforts are being made, but more effort could be needed. And then finally, for more information, I encourage you on Twitter, you can look for hashtag ocean optimism to flag story of success and two major reviews of Ocean Conservation Successes, which were published in the last uh, year or two by Duarte, the one I mentioned, and also one I wrote in 2021 called Ocean Optimism, Moving Beyond Obituaries. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.